And just for a change, that is The Smiths with a track titled Unlovable. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, playing the finest in indie pop, and each week we like a special guest. This week it is the turn of Calvin Johnson. Yes, he from many musical bands and also K Records. So I've got that interview that I've got broken up into either three or four easy-to-digest little segments, but to kick off the party and to get the ball rolling, this is going to be the Halo Benders. Something 
Indeed, the unmistakable sound of the Halo Benders, and that was a track called God Don't Touch My Bikini. That came from their album, God Don't Make Me No Junk. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show, and this week's special guest is Calvin Johnston, because I interviewed him last week, which I was very excited about. So after the next song, you'll have the first part of that interview. And for those who are excited about the C86 Show, you can find the archive on Mixcloud Spotify, I know, check me out, iTunes and Podbean. So just go to C86 Show. And if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show and it will all be there. But I think we'll have a bit more music and then the first part of the interview. This is going to be the beat happening with the track titled Indian Summer. Breakfast in cemetery, boy tasting wild cherry, touch girl apple blossom, just a boy playing possum, we'll come back for Indian summer, we'll come back for Indian summer, we'll come back for Indian summer, What is that cheerful sound? Rain falling on the ground. We'll wear a jolly crown. Buckle up, we're wayward bound. We'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian summer. And go a separate way. Touch your hem, you say. Let's stroll down Martin Way. Pick plums, abandoned farm. Who let norms come to harm? We'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian summer. Then go a separate ways. Cover me with rain. Walk me down the lane I'll drink from your drain We will never change No matter what they rain We'll come back for Indian summer We'll come back for Indian summer We'll come back for Indian summer And go our separate ways 
cemetery Picnic on wild berries French toast with molasses Croquet and baked Alaskas We'll come back for Indian summer We'll come back for Indian summer We'll come back for Indian summer Cover me with rain And there you have it, the beat happening with the track titled Indian Summer that came from their 1988 album Jamboree that was on K Records. Obviously, um, he says, yeah, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with Kelvin Johnson, where we started, as we also always do, um, talking about the new album that he brought out last year titled A Wonderful Beast. And um, yes, I just asked him how many or how long that project had been happening and sort of in the can before it sort of got released. And this was his answer. Calvin, take it away. Oh, yes. Well, you know, I had met uh, the producer, uh, Patrick Carney. He, he, uh, he's from a town called Akron, Ohio. And uh, the first time I played there, which was I, which was really late in things, you know, it seems like I would have played there before then, but I didn't play there until 2005, and uh, I uh, he came to the show and uh, we stayed at his, we ended up staying at his house, and uh, so we had a really good time just hanging, yes. and uh, and then a few years few years later or ten years later or something. He was like, hey, we should do some recording. And I'm like, great, let's do it. <laughs> but you know how these things, they, they always take a little bit of time. So by the time we got it, it took a year and a half or so. But we, uh, I ended up going out. He lives, in, he lives in Nashville, Tennessee now. Right. So uh, I went to Nashville and we spent a couple of days and we, we, we recorded a couple songs and it went really well. So then the idea was, well, we should do more. Yes. But then it took another year and a half for us to actually get back together. So at the beginning of last year, um, uh, 2018, we uh, we finally were able to spend like 12 days together just just recording. And that was really fun. So it's I just he has a studio above his garage at his house. And uh, I just uh, I never left. The, I mean, for 12 days, I never left the house. We just we just worked on the record. It was it was it was joyous. Yeah, yes. it was a lot of fun. And did you? So he. And yes. I was just going to say, did you put all that together? You know, the lyrics, the sort of, the music, everything together within that twelve-day period. Pretty much. The, um, the, I had a few ideas, some song titles, and a few things scribbled down. But mostly, we just uh, collaborated. Uh, we we just uh, you know we came up with the idea of what kind of song should exist, and then we went from there. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I've been sort of catching up on various kind of rock documentaries that um, are around, which I've sort of either I missed them the first time or I wasn't particularly keen on the band, but then thought, you know, being of that p- sort of uh, personality that enjoys wa- watching rock mm. documentaries, I just thought, I understand. I <laughs> know it's tempting, isn't it? But I saw the one on Twisted Sister, which was quite interesting, and then one on oh. Metallica. As well, and uh-huh. and it was kind of interesting because I think that was recorded or filmed around two thousand and two. So it's quite old, but it was interesting watching them doing the creative process because it took uh-huh. well over two years to do the album, and it was kind of interesting when they were sort of uh, sort of producing and sort of recording stuff and then playing it back, and then people saying, "No, I'm not sure if that's good enough." So did you find with your own sort of creative? kind of period during those those two weeks did that sort of all flow together did you feel like you had a sort of almost a backlog in your mind and subconscious to say this is what we need i i think that uh that's true because prior to this this record before prior to making a wonderful beast i had been uh performing and recording under the nom de plume selector of narcotic which was a, a different kind of process and a different kind of music. Uh, I mean, it's the same pop music, same Calvin music, really. It's all the same. Yes. But it was using uh, drum machines more and like, uh, and using a more of a computer-based uh, uh, composed composition process. So, um, I think that getting back to playing guitar and uh, and and you know uh, and keyboards and things. Uh, there might have been a, a moment of like just letting it all out. Yes, 
This is very mm-hmm. true, actually. I can I can sort of remember some of those documentaries with people like David Bowie working with uh, Brian Eno and the way that they mm-hmm. sort of brought it together, mostly in the studio. So it wasn't sort of he didn't bring things. He you know he had to create it the kind of there and there on the there and there on the spot. And it was quite interesting sort of watching that process. But I often wonder for an artist, is it also quite a scary place to be? Oh, well, you know, um, it, the, 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 the wonderful beast, both the wonderful beast and my, the selector dumb narcotic album, which is called this party is just getting started. Uh, they were, they were collaborative in a lot of ways The with, uh, with this party is just getting started. I was collaborating with a producer named smoke M two D six. And, uh, in, and even though the, 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 the tools were, were different. Um, the process was very similar. We, in both, both with Patrick and with smoke, we just were like bouncing ideas off each other and, you know, sort of a brainstorming and then going for it. And, and I think with collaboration, it's so much, it, I've, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Um, and I think that what is exciting about it is that you don't have that moment of, uh, writer's block where you feel a panic. Wait, what am I going to do? Because you're bouncing ideas off somebody and this things just keep rolling. Yes. And uh, the collaborative process, I think one of the important parts is a, a, a feeling of t- trust. I trust that if Smoke thinks it's a good idea, then it's a good idea and I just go for it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that, it, that, it, that, that, that it is very helpful, I think, to be able to bounce ideas off a collaborator. And that's the first part of my interview with Calvin Johnson. Quite a lot more of that still to go. So lucky you. Um, but I thought we should break it up with a little bit of music. This is going to be a track that's taken from the new album that came out last year. This is titled Kiss Me Sweetly. Calvin, take it away. <laughs> Silence deadly and kiss me. 
And that's the track titled Kiss Me Sweetly from Calvin Johnson's 19, no, not 19, 2018 album titled A Wonderful Beast. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. And this is going to be the second part of my interview with Calvin, where I've been talking about childhood music because we were, I think, of a similar, similar age. So I've been whittling or waffling on about the life of Burt Backrack and uh, Karen Carpenter and all those sort of bands and um, was also curious to know what Kelvin had been listening to during his childhood years. Kelvin, tell us what you'd been listening to. Well, uh, in terms of what my mother listened to, she was very into like Broadway soundtracks. Uh, uh, there some 50s and 60s Broadway shows like Guys and Dolls and Damn Yankees and uh, Sweet Charity and things like that and and Camelot. So those were the records that we heard around the house as a child. But uh, then my brother Streeter, he he started listening. He's four years older than me, so he got the transistor radio and started listening to the radio. And uh, that's when I started to get exposed to like pop music. Yes. And uh, and that was that really wasn't until the early the early seventies. Uh, and, uh, so, but, but, you know, the Carpenters and, and, uh, they were definitely huge for, uh, my, and my sister, you know, she was into that stuff and my older sister. So it's listening to the music of my older siblings, you know, my brother got into like heavy rock, like, uh, deep purple and grand funk railroad and Steppenwolf and, uh, you know, black Sabbath and things like that. So, um, but he was also into like Three Dog Night and, you know, just a lot of pop pop music. So that music of that time, definitely um, I heard it. But at the same time, I was always feeling like it wasn't quite right. It never seemed quite what I wanted. And I feel like the music of the 60s always felt like the music. You know, when I started to get into music on my own, I really hearkened back to like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones from the early 60s and the mid 60s. And to me, that seemed like the ultimate music. And so the music of the 70s that I was hearing on the radio, it just, even though I was, you know, catchy tunes by the Bay City Rollers and stuff, but it was like the song by the Bay City Rollers that really caught me was, um, turns out was a cover by, uh, you know, by um, Dusty Springfield. And then I found out, oh, there's a person who did this song in the 60s. Oh, that's really interesting. And so, you know, looking at those kinds of things. I really got into music from the sixties and that's why when punk happened to me, it was like bringing music from the sixties into the modern era. It was like, here's simple, straightforward pop music played really in a minimal way. And that's, you know, that that's to me, that was like, this is it. This is what it's all about right here. Yes. It's interesting. Cause I was sort of mentioned my mum. my dad was into uh, country and Western like Jim Reeves and, uh, he especially liked Elvis and stuff like that. But it was my brother who was seven years older than me. He introduced me to, uh, it was mostly prog rock, like uh, Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash. But he also had Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. Well, this is the early 70s, so, you know, these were mm-hmm. the bands that, of that time. But his record collection was very much of a conceptual sort of prog kind of nature. But it was kind of also, we were exposed to Top of the Pops, which was this program on a Thursday night. And, you know, in that kind of, you know, as a 10-year-old, you know, it was kind of mesmerised by the glam stuff like sweet uh-huh. and uh i suppose i suppose i shouldn't admit it but you know there was people like gary glitter but you know obviously mm-hmm. that didn't work out very well and obviously the bay city rollers but the other but yeah. the person and and it was my first love and he stayed with me all the time was seeing david bowie it was kind of oh, uh-huh. mesmerized by by the bowie experience really so yeah plus you know the chart stuff but i must admit you know i the punk thing didn't really enter my life until i the 80s and then it was mostly the indie pop scene that i was particularly fond of and keen on oh uh uh-huh yeah well that's interesting you should mention um the suite because they were they were a band that uh just their their pop hits were were songs that we really liked and uh and uh they, you know, we bought the 45s, my, my brother, and, and uh, we didn't know anything about them really, but we just, you know, that album, uh, Desolation Boulevard and stuff, uh, and then Little Willie and some of their other hits were just really, they seemed really exciting and, and, and again, minimal, like straightforward. I mean, the Bay City Rollers, I think, of the, and the Street have a lot in common in that they, they both had these really straightforward and super catchy pop songs. Yes. You know, 
Well, it's you know, interesting yeah. with bass sitarists because I've interviewed Les, the lead singer, several times, and it was quite nice oh, talking uh-huh. to him because you know he's such a legend, and also you know he's got one of the worst rock and roll stories that you can have. So that was quite an interesting experience. But it was, but the bass sitarists, if it wasn't for them, you know, the Ramones wouldn't have existed, and neither would punk rock. That was my theory, by the way. That's not, uh-huh. not but it's interesting because they had a lot of chanty songs, and if you listen to the bass sitarists for a bit, and their fast rocky songs, and then go straight to the Ramones, you'll go, blimey, the Ramones were just, you know, the New York version, really, without the tartan. So that's... Yeah, that's... that could be. <laughs> well, I think they they, they, all, they, all, they both drew from the same, um, you know, uh, uh, inspiration. It did. Certainly. I thought mm-hmm. so. So when did you start playing music? Did when, when was that kind of moment you sort of went from being the fan to the let's let's kind of try and sort of form something and create a sound ourselves? Uh... When I was uh, thirteen or so, and uh, you know, reading about reading about the early Beatles and and Liverpool, and and that kind of scene where it was like people were playing shows in their mom's basements and and uh, you know the Indira Club and and then the the Cavern and just they seemed really exciting and interesting that you could have a a community of 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 music. And a local level like that, that seems really where, you know, the show could sell out and have hundreds of people there. And that just seemed really exciting to me. And it, it really confused me about why, why isn't it like that anymore? And that's another reason why punk seemed exciting, because it seemed like it was a return to that local excitement, local music, uh, bringing local music back um, into, uh, you know, into the fold. And yeah. so uh, I feel like when I was reading about that or reading about San Francisco in, in the, you know, the flower era, it seemed like cool local scenes. And I, I felt like that's what we should have. And, uh, so when I started playing music, that was my idea that there should be a local scene like that. And then, you know, that's before punk had really uh, dawned on me. Yes. Uh, uh, like this is like 76 or something. And, uh, I was uh, playing guitar, but then I, I heard about punk rock, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is it. This is the thing. It's like cool pop music. It's local. It's got groovy scenes that just anybody can be a part of." It seemed really exciting, so um, that's when I and I think also the idea that a lot of the people who were into music, if they were into music, they were usually into like you're talking about prog rock or playing music or being really good at playing music and stuff like that which all seemed just so boring. I just couldn't be bothered. Like sitting in my room and practicing guitar just seemed so pointless. Um, but being in a band and playing guitar, that seemed a lot more exciting. Okay. So there might be a point to practicing if it was to play a show, but just to be a good guitar player, that didn't seem to be, that seemed so boring. I couldn't deal. Yes. So, um, so there was a shift, there was a real split there uh, between when punk rock happened because people who were into music and interesting music just also happened to be into like prog rock and really boring music. And so when punk rock came along, some of them followed it, but a lot of them in America, it was probably different than it was in, in Great Britain because in America we didn't have punk rock. There was no punk rock. We never heard it. The radio had never played it. You couldn't buy it at the record store. So all people knew about it was what they read about in the magazine. And those people knew, the one thing they knew, they didn't know what it sounded like, but they knew it sucked <laughs> because they'd read about how bad it was. Excellent. And if Rick Wakeman doesn't like it, then, then there's no reason for them to listen to it. <laughs> and I was like, but he's an old man. Who cares what he thinks? That was my point of view, being, a, you know, being 13. Um, you know, Rick Wakeman was probably like 28, you know, but... Um, uh, Anyway, uh, so so there was a real split because the people who played music and were into rock bands and stuff, they were all into like playing really, really well and, and being really boring. And so it was hard to find people who wanted to play music that was just fun and just, you know. Um, so uh, I did put together a band when I was 16. We played one show here in Olympia. Uh, and uh, that was pretty fun. Yes. There was about 10 people there. Was this the Cool Rays? No, that was before that. It was the band called The Beachheads. Okay. Um, played one show, and then the next week I moved I moved away from Olympia, 
uh, my mother got a job on the East Coast, so we moved to uh, to the Washington D.C. area. So I so that the band we got the band together and we played, and then uh, then the band basically broke up because I moved away. God. But um, I think it was a classic band from that era because because punk was so nascent. Most punk bands, punk, you have to put little quotations around it. They were like the one or two people who were into punk. And then they have to find people who could play their instruments to be in the band. So then there was like two people who didn't even know what punk rock was and never heard of it. And they were, in, you know, so it was like you look at pictures of bands from, 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 from the United States from like 1977, you know, and it's like two guys with really long hair and then two punk rock looking guys. You know, and that's just sort of the classic thing because there weren't enough punks to have a band. Yes. So you had to you had to form alliances. It's a tricky world forming a band. Anyway, that was the second part of my interview with Calvin Johnson. This is David Eastall, the C eighty six show. We've got more of that interview. But I think we all break it up with another track from one of Calvin's many musical adventures. This is when he was part of the dub narcotic sound system and this is a track titled ship to shore i know it's got a very different vibe but turn up your stereos you'll enjoy it i'm sure
the mellow dub sound of Calvin Johnson with the dub narcotic sound system. The track titled Shake, no not Shake, Shipped Ashore and that was from the album Boot Party. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Calvin Johnson where I'd been talking about the musical scene that had been changing in the sort of late uh, 70s and early 80s and the movement from sort of punk to post-punk to indie pop and whether he sort of was aware of these kind of shifts especially as he was in America not in the UK at the time and this was Calvin's reply Calvin what was your reply well certainly because once I got involved in punk rock and the whole idea of local music scenes that became my focus and um and so uh and that still is. I mean, that's that's pretty much all I'm interested in. Uh, and and you know, old habits are hard to lose. Uh, but yeah, because um, you're 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 sort of the band that really sort of blossomed for you, and you know, was the you know beat happening. And I just wondered what that kind of process was of of you know forming that and sort of taking it through to the next kind of you know, recording, touring and sort of being in a sort of a band with other people and all that kind of dynamic. I just wondered how that sort of panned out. Uh, seemed to work okay. Yes. And you obviously picked up quite an audience and sort of quite a following at the same time. Well, here and there. Uh, I think in retrospect, it seems like it was more spectacular than it really was. I mean, we never were... a we never played to, we had a few shows where we played to large audiences because we were playing with somebody else, but you know, it was never really a, a band that, that had its own thing. Yes. But, but you know, of... being born in Olympia, I mean, being raised, the band being born in Olympia, be happening starting in Olympia. Um, there was a local scene and that was exciting, but a local scene, I mean, uh, there was few shows that had even a hundred people at them. Yes. You know, but it was, but the enthusiasm was exciting. Yeah, because it's interesting because I've sort of spoke to, done quite a lot of interviews with various people, including the Marine Girls and uh, I think Gina from the Raincoats. And uh, they've all sort of mentioned you and K Records and the kind of the influence or how influential that was and the sort of the networks that you kind of created and, and the you know, influences you had. So you must feel kind of ch- quite, I say quite, you know, really pleased with some, some of the things that uh, you helped to, yeah, kind of generate within your sort well, of... Well, it's... Yeah, in, within your sort of, you know, musical sort of... Uh, I know career sounds a bit sort of a, a sort of... Um, I don't know, clinical world, world, word, but, you know, it's it's like, you know, a lot of people have sort of name-checked you in, in interviews I've done. Well, that's that's very uh, flattering that um, Gina from the Marine Girls or Gina from the Raincoats, who are two different people, um, <laughs> uh, would would even be aware of my existence. It's That's that's very flattering because I'm, I'm a big fan of both of their entities. Yes. Well, I realise that the, with, with the Marine Girls, I mean, they, they had a very short life span of about two years but their influence that they had was absolutely huge and obviously Kurt Cobain kind of you know name checks one of their albums and the Raincoats similar as well as the Va- the Vaseline so those kind of bands that sort of from the UK even though they didn't last long they they, they produced a couple of records or an album and a style a style and a sound that sort of had a huge influence and I, I you know, you sort of are also part of that kind of narrative of, of having a huge influence on sort of a lot of people. Well, I don't mind being uh, put in the same category of Marine Girls and Raincoats in any way, which, mm. you know, feel free. <laughs> and when, and you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I've, I sort of haven't interviewed a lot of bands and I realise... I've almost got it down to, you know, like most bands last five years. Well, you know, and it's probably in this country where, you know, they get together, they have two years making a sound. Then the DJ John Peel would pick it, pick up the single if, they, you know, if it had a bit of a quirkiness to it. And that would often put the band into a sort of another little kind of stage or phase of playing more gigs further afield and then having a John Peel session. Then they'd have the first album. And things at that stage were going well for them. A lot of bands would often then struggle with the second album and in the UK, if anybody ever tours America, that often seems to kind of finish them off, you know, almost mm. 100%. I mean, 
you know, with with that kind of narrative, do you kind of can you kind of also relate to that? Well, that's a very British narrative because uh, you have a smaller world. You have a country that's physically much smaller, but you have a lot of people jammed into a small area, and then you have these cities and areas that are that are very unique and have developed their own identities and uh and at the same time you had it you had you probably still do i don't really know uh but in the 70s and 80s there was a very strong national music press that was hungry to fill its pages so it was always trying to discover something to write about and see if people would buy their magazine to read about whoever it is they they, they decided to write about and so there, there there was that i mean you you mentioned john peel but i think there was also the 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 press were a big part of that cycle that that accelerated cycle that you talk about where bands get discovered and get eaten up and chewed out and by the second album they're they're old men or whatever but uh i think or old hat more yes. more like um but, i yeah. think that that in america we never had that we didn't have any national just like i was saying how no one ever heard punk rock because there was nowhere to hear it you couldn't find it you uh there was no national radio that was playing unusual music and uh, so in America, we didn't have that process, that accelerated process of of uh, of overnight success, more or less, that you're that you're describing. Yes. Well, on the, an underground level. Well, the music press in this country during those decades, I mean, they were, you know, it was huge. I, I don't it was kind of often on a Wednesday, you'd have the NME and they were selling something like 100,000 copies, and then Melody Maker. And then you also had sounds as well. So I can't believe it now. You had three weekly magazines. And you had a very mm-hmm. sort of like a very small outlet of radio. You know, there wasn't that many. Mm-hmm. So you had to go to, you know, basically Radio One and listen to one or two DJs who would play certain music. So if you got on there, you know, John Peel was like the gatekeeper, like the NME was the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. You know, you only had to have one mention or one interview and you'd sort of immediately sort of get hit, you know, have sort of be on people's radar very instantly. And I think that sort of accelerated things. And obviously with the the music press in this country, they liked having a scene. They liked to create this scene. So, you know, we had this indie scene or the C86 scene. And, you know, it was quite manufactured. So they just stuck a load of bands together on this cassette called the C86 cassette, you know, and it featured all these kind of slightly interesting, funky bands like The Wedding Present or Early Primal Scream or Bog Shed. Um, you know, uh, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it, half man, half biscuit. And suddenly you go, right, that's the scene. And then in, you know, like 87, 88, you know people wanted to move off again and there was like the dance scene started to happen and then obviously you had grunge and and that kind of world of sonic youth and the butthole surface so it's kind of interesting how the music kind of scene did move so quickly Mm. well um yeah in olympia we had a, a really cool scene going around 84 83 to 85 and uh because we had this little club here called the tropicana that um, that was more or less collaboratively put together by a bunch of the people who were in bands. And because there wasn't really a place at that time, coincidentally, for a lot of underground bands to play in Seattle, a lot of underground groups were playing this place called the Tropicana. And so we got to see Butthole Surfers, like in 1984, and Scratch Acid, and Three O'Clock, and, and uh, just uh, tons of bands from around the country just happened to play in Olympia and it was, it was, you know, it was really exciting. Um, uh, and then some of the Seattle bands, uh, you know, like the and green river played here. Um, and they couldn't, they really couldn't get all ages shows in Seattle. So they would come here to play. So it was, a, it was an exciting moment, uh, for, for underground music in the Northwest and, and in Olympia because, uh, there was an audience and there was a venue. Yes. So it, it came together in that way. And Beat Happening played that played the Tropicana many times. And uh, it was really, a, you know, the Melvins were one of the first bands to play there. Uh, uh, Girl Trouble and just, yeah, it was it was a great, a great spot. But I think that um, it taught me that that it was it sort of just confirmed my idea that I had gotten by reading about Liverpool in 61 is that if you have people and a scene, you know, a scene could exist. It's spontaneous if you have the right elements at the right time. And uh, 
And that's what happened. All these teenagers, you know, all these teenagers just showed up and started uh, coming to shows and it was great. Yes. And in 82, you know, in your, I suppose, yes, in your youthful enthusiasm and excitement and creativity, you, you also started a record label. So what was the kind of inspiration for that? You know, Well, just punk rock, the same thing. You know, so many interesting record labels were doing uh, great music all around the country and around, you know, in England, there was tons of labels that, you know, we, you know, um, but, uh, again, it was different because in England you had this, you think there was much more, um, you had much more of an infrastructure for record labels, for independent record labels, uh, and bands than we had in the United States. So there was a lot easier for things to get heard for better or for worse, like we were talking. Yes. For worse, in the way that things, they're always needing something. You know, those music papers, there's three of them, and they have a lot of pages to fill. So they have to, you know, invent new genres all the time. And uh, and that seemed, like you said, very contrived. I think from our point of view, it seemed like just a joke. <laughs> but um, But we didn't even see those papers very often, you know. We just once in a while. Yes. But, um, but you know, uh, yeah, so we st I started the label because also at the time I was working at the radio station here in town. It's called uh, Chaos. It's an independent, um, non it's a non-commercial community radio station, and we were getting a lot of records from all over the country. And it was really interesting to see the way you know these different scenes were developing. But there was also a fanzine here called Sub Pop, which later became the record label. And uh, so Bruce Pavitt and I both had radio shows on Chaos. And uh, we both were writing for the Sub Pop fanzine. And uh, I felt like I should stop just writing about it and actually do it. Yes. And Which isn't that strange because I feel like at the time, it seemed as though, to, uh, from our point of view, putting, doing a radio show or doing a fanzine or writing, playing in a band or having a record label, they're all the same thing. So it wasn't like I should stop writing about it and do a record. It was like we were writing about it and now we're doing a record label. It was, you know, it was just the, it was, it was more like a continuum. Yeah. It was just inevitable. It's just interesting because I sort of um, kind of, I interviewed um, both Matt and Claire from Sarah Records and they, you know, started with a fancy and then they sort of went into starting, you know, Sarah Records. But as they both said, you know, they didn't really know exactly what they were doing and had to be explained what a receipt was and or an invoice and, and all that kind of stuff. So did it take, did you have to learn fast about how, how to set up a record label and distribution and sort of contracts and publishing rights and all those sort of things? Well, I never did learn all that, but um, I did have a, an important uh, precedent because there was a magazine, I was talking about the fanzine Sub Pop, but there was also an, a, a more uh, official publication in Olympia called, at the time, called Op Magazine, which was which had born, which was also grown out of chaos, and the the Op Magazine was oriented towards independent music of all kinds. It wasn't just punk rock and and rock and roll and and whatever. It was all kinds of music, but it was the emphasis was on independent music, music that's on an independent label or artist owned and operated labels. Or no label at all. Artists just making their own record without a label. And that was the focus. And that's what Sub Pop grew out of. Sub Pop became, was taking the op idea, but just concentrating on just the punk rock and new wave scene. And uh, so I'd already been working at op and I had learned a little bit about, I'd, I'd worked with them going to stores, going to bookstores and record stores, selling, doing consignment or not, or just selling directly or, dealing with distributors. Uh, so that, I'd already had some experience doing that before I started the label uh, with the idea of independent distribution and um, sales on, on that small level and trying to get the word out around the country. When I, when I had moved to the East Coast, like you said, uh, uh, I said when I was 16 and I lived on the East Coast for a year, uh, I would get a box of op magazines and I just go around to the record stores and the bookstores in that area and um, and sell them to them 
So I, I already had some experience doing that kind of thing. Yes. And obviously, f- phenomenal sort of ability to sort of, um, you know, kind of create sort of bands. Because, you, you know, you, you had a sort of project with Go Team, then Dub Neurotic, 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 no, what's it called? Dub Neurotic uh, Sound System and then Halo Benders. I mean, that that's quite, a, you know, a prolific kind of output during that sort of period. So obviously you know, a bit like David Bowie, sort of hardly ever sort of stopped. And when I looked at his kind of work in the 70s, you know, he was releasing a um, kind of an album a year, you know, producing other people's relocating. So did it, you know, do, does that kind of creative process kind of f- flow kind of easily with you? No, uh, it would be wonderful it did. But having a record label, I had the um, the pleasure and it really it was more of a... a an honor to be uh, able to witness other artists in their creative process and, and take part in that in some, in some whatever extent I, I do. Yes. Um, and that, that's a lot of fun. And, uh, and I feel like I, I learned a lot from people uh, by, by watching the way they make records and the way they make up songs and the way they perform. Yes. And, and I think that that has been one of the, <clears throat> one of the strong suits of a lot of the artists on K is that they were live performers. They were good live performers. A lot of them were, were great live artists. And that was, um, and they continued. And because there was no radio play, there was no real press. The only way that artists could get out in the world is by playing shows. And uh, that was, that. fortunately, that was their forte. And that is going to be the last part of my interview with Calvin Johnson. I have quite a bit more of that, so I'll probably put that as a podcast. But um, thank you for listening, and a huge thank you for Calvin for giving me an hour of his time. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86show. I will be there. It's always good. And as I said, the show has been archived onto Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, and um, Podbean. So there you go. Check it out. Anyway, I'll leave you with another track from Calvin's huge back catalogue. This is going to be the Halo Benders with the title of Virginia Reel Around the Fountain. Have a great week. (laughs) 